Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. I am a social psychologist. People like me do empirical research. We collect data about people through such methods as interviews and surveys and experiments. But why? What's the value? What's the point? Is it simply interpretive work? Is the goal to understand solely for the sake of understanding? Or is the work justified by its ability to improve people's lives? And does that possibility include helping promote social justice and eradicate injustice? Whatever the justification, how do we do such work well? These are the kinds of questions I recently put to the guests in this episode. John Jost is professor of psychology and politics and co-director of the Center for Social and Political Behavior at NYU and one of the developers of System Justification Theory, which you'll hear more about. Jim Sedanius is the John Lindsley Professor of Psychology and Memory of William James and of African and African American Studies at Harvard and one of the developers of Social Dominance Theory, which you'll also hear about. I share my conversation with them in this episode, which is titled Just Theory. So I want to uh, first uh, get people who may not be familiar with uh, the respective theories for which each of you may be best known oriented. And I want to start, uh, John, with you. Uh, so you are, if I'm, if I'm correct, you're, you're not the sole progenitor, but you're one of the co-progenitors of system justification theory? I think that's right. Uh, I started working on it when I was a PhD student at Yale University with Mazarin Banaji, uh, now uh, one of Jim's colleagues at Harvard. Um, and we were the co-authors of the first paper, which is now 25 years old, uh, celebrating its 25th anniversary, published in 1994 in the British Journal of Social Psychology. And I believe that the next issue of the British Journal of Social Psychology will have uh, some papers reflecting on the 25-year anniversary. Well, uh, happy anniversary, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if one of my undergrads were to ask me uh, to briefly summarize what I take to be the um, aim of system justification theory, it would be to account for, to explain why it is that people who are parts of systems, even if those systems may actually be unjust, uh, why people might still be motivated to perceive them in, uh, as, as just, even if they are among the people who are uh, being treated unjustly by the system. Have I got it completely wrong? What would you add? That's, uh, that's an excellent summary. Um, I, the only thing I might add is that uh, the idea is that people need to, in certain ways, for motivational reasons, we think, make peace sort of with the status quo. And a big way of making peace with it is by seeing it as fair and just. But there, I think there are other ways uh, as well of making peace 
uh, with the status quo, you might see things as desirable in some other way, such as efficient or uh, mm -hmm. providing social order or stability or some other valued thing. So, um, and I think maybe I haven't always been perfectly clear on this. Um, philosophers would make a distinction between justicizing something and justifying something. And when you justicize something, you do... Um, you do uh, justify it on the grounds of justice or fairness. Uh, but there are other ways of justifying something as well. And Jim, in the case of, thank you, uh, Jim, in the case of social dominance theory, if a student were to ask me to offer a similar summary, I would say that what uh, social dominance theory sets out to do is to account for or explain the formation and also the persistence of group-based hierarchies, and there's a lot of moving parts, including uh, the kinds of myths or belief systems that can uh, reinforce hierarchy and ones that can undermine it, and there's at least one important individual difference variable uh, that describes uh, how motivated people are or how much they support the maintenance of hierarchy. Uh, am I completely off base? Um, what would you add? What would you correct? That's a pretty good description of the theory. Uh, and basically, um, the theory uh, argues that to understand uh, systems of oppression such as racism and sexism and classism, etc., you need to understand uh, the formation of hierarchy, that these forms of oppression are really manifestations are examples of societies forming themselves as group-based hierarchies. Um, and that there are at least two forces which counteract each other, what we call hierarchy-enhancing forces, which can be ideologies, institutions, social mores, and social values, and ideological beliefs, and high hierarchy-attenuating uh, ideologies, social beliefs, and um, etc., which maintain a kind of stasis between the tendency to form group-based social hierarchies on the one hand, and pushes and pushes toward um, egalitarianism on the other. So that's basically what the theory says. And. Just as a quick follow-up, and, and by the way, I want to emphasize uh, to Jim and also to, to listeners how grateful I am. Uh, I'm grateful to both of you for joining us, but uh, Jim, you're getting over a pretty nasty uh, flu, so thanks so much for joining us. Um, as a follow-up to your answer, uh, I recently interviewed Ashley Jardina, and Ashley is a political scientist uh, at Duke University, and she has a brand new book that's just come out called White Identity Politics. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the themes of the book is that even when you control for racial attitudes, so even when you control for um, racism, at least in its attitudinal form, she finds that a number of uh, political stances, such as support for the border wall that uh, President Trump has been advocating for, can be predicted by whites' degree of uh, identification with their in-group. 
And so mm-hmm. the idea, the idea is uh, support for anti-egalitarian, uh, what might be view- viewed as anti-egalitarian positions, as positions that are going to hurt vulnerable groups. That support is not only predicted by hostility toward such outgroups, but it's also predicted by your degree of attachment to your in-group as a member, in this case of the category white. I wonder if you would consider uh, what she's characterizing as white identity or white identification, would that qualify as an example of a hierarchy-enhancing myth? Yeah, at least it's a hierarchy-enhancing social force. Um, and ideological myths, uh, legitimizing myths, are simply special examples of hierarchy atten- attenuating and enhancing forces or tendencies. So that these HD uh, hierarchy enhancing and HA hierarchy attenuating forces manifest themselves in several different manners in terms of cultural values, ideologies, and identities. And this notion that uh, political ideology or policy stances among whites are related to white identity would be an example of a hierarchy enhancing set of forces. So, John, one of the questions that I want to put to both of you, but I'm going to put it to you first, is about what the, the question rests upon a distinction that I at least would draw between uh, interpretation and what I might call correction. So um, would it be, so in the case of system justification theory, do you think of it, John, solely as uh, a useful tool in interpreting, say, inequality? Uh, or would you say that system justification theory might also serve a useful corrective function, so helping to uh, reduce inequality? Yeah, absolutely, both. Uh, I, I think the first step, especially for social scientists, to trying uh, in, in trying to come to terms with uh, and address social problems uh, in the in the illustrious t- tradition we have in social psychology of Kurt Lewin, I think the first step is to try to understand and analyze. Uh, and describe and explain the social and psychological phenomena that give rise to uh, things that we identify as problems, including um, extreme forms of inequality or stratification or oppression, as Jim is saying. Uh, and without a really good understanding, I think, of the, the social psychological dynamics of that, I think that our attempts at intervention are going to be uh, pretty weak. Uh, but hopefully with a sophisticated understanding of these things, we'll do a lot better. So just to follow up for you, John, before I go to Jim, are there specific examples you can recall of uh, instances in which system justification theory has played a role in addressing uh, and, and in particular reducing inequality? Or, 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 or do you, or I can imagine that one might argue that its role is always going to be indirect. Uh, it's going to help with understanding, but say activists, policymakers will need to add some auxiliary assumptions uh, to that understanding in order to be able to actually move the needle in addressing inequality. But are, are there ways in which you see that it's been a directly useful tool in reducing inequality? Well, it's always a little bit hard to know uh, 
what the impacts of your own research are. Uh, certainly, I've had conversations with people, um, including community organizers and political figures and people who work in political messaging, uh, social media, and so on. And, you know, I'm, I share my my research with them. I share my perceptions with them. I try to answer their questions. Uh, and then they end up doing something and it works or it doesn't work. And the connections from my work to what they're doing are, are usually pretty unclear. Uh, you know, there's no formal citation process when people are, are rolling out interventions. Yeah. Uh, and that's fine with me. I don't feel that I need to get the credit or something like that. Um, but it, it's just a way of saying that it's, it's really never clear, I think, what uh, influence you're having in some ways. Um, if I was going to speak to, to one area where I think it's possible or most possible or something, I, it would probably be in the area of climate change messaging. Um, I've had a lot of, um, not a lot, but I've had some meetings with people uh, who are um, working on how to improve environmental messaging around issues of anthropogenic climate change. And some of our research suggested that, that uh, people, especially people with certain ideological uh, predilections, are, are quite defensive about the possibility that uh, the way we're living is uh, posing massive uh, problems for the natural environment and that we need to make fundamental changes to either to our economy or to our everyday lives or both. And it, it, it does seem clear to me that there's a lot of defensiveness around those issues. And it also seems clear to me that system justification theory can help to understand some of that defensiveness. And one of the things we've tried to do is, is to figure out ways of overcoming that kind of defensiveness or either going around it or using it uh, to promote change rather than to inhibit change. And so some of the messaging we've done around that has been to reframe the need to support pro-environmental initiatives as being congruent with the preservation of American way of life and uh, our way of living. So in essence, rather than framing the need for change as something that is inherently a threat to the status quo or system challenging, to reframe it as patriotic and uh, a way of guaranteeing that future generations will enjoy um, the kind of um, relationship that Americans have enjoyed with their natural environment for generations. Uh, are you advising uh, AOC yet? <laughs> no, I haven't met her. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to. She's she's nearby. <laughs> uh, I'll be sure to, uh, uh, to to mention her to, to to at her on Twitter and maybe. Okay. maybe, maybe All right. are, are you friends with her? Do you know her, Michael? Uh, no, not yet. She's she, she, she's she's a future dream guest on Tatter. Yeah, you should get her. You should definitely get her. <laughs> so, Jim, what about social dominance theory? Would you characterize it as exclusively helpful in in in, in interpretation? of the roots of uh, group-based hierarchy, or does it have a role to play in actually undermining group-based hierarchy? Well, I both. Um, um, same kind of answer I, that uh, John just gave. I primarily think of um, social dominance theory as an interpretive framework rather than an action agenda 
uh, I tend to be a little skeptical about the application of uh, social scientific or social psychological theory to actual praxis, because I don't really uh, think that we understand the um, psychological, psychosocial, institutional dynamics of oppression well enough to be able to, with any confidence, recommend a, a agenda, a policy agenda. And I don't think it's really advisable or very possible to try to wear two hats at the same time. That is to say, one is a theoretician and the other hat is a policy maker or advocate of any particular position. I think you really need to try to separate them as much as possible. Um, and that's a, somewhat of a minority position in this field since most social psychologists go into the field with the intention right. of making the world a better place. Right. And so, yeah, go on. Well, I, 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 you in, in a way anticipated my follow-up question, which is in your relationships with advisees, so graduate students working with you, perhaps postdocs, I wonder if that has been uh, a source of tension between you or frustration on their part, uh, where your approach is, as you've just described it, yet they might be drawn to the field because of a desire to do more than simply interpret the world, but to actually help change it. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I'm very honest and upfront with the students who are interested in working with me from the beginning to let them know what my orientation is and to see whether or not they're comfortable working with that kind of framework. And for the most part, that has been successful. That is to say that my students know exactly where I'm coming from and there's a little tension between us on the issue. But I fully expect them because they're driven by a desire to improve the human condition to try to do that upon graduation or when they enter their uh, adult lives. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to criticize them for that, but I just won't necessarily follow them into that later stage, uh, policy implementation stage. So following on both your remarks, I want to present a hypothetical, although please forgive me if this is uh, asking you to, to repeat something that you've done in actuality. But suppose that it's a little less than a year from now, we're in New Orleans for the annual meeting of the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. So uh, one of, if not the major uh, professional society in our field, and you've been invited to deliver plenary remarks on the question or set of questions revolving around how and to what extent research in our field does or should engage with issues of social justice. Uh, so you've been invited to talk about the, the state of the field and whether there are specific things that we should do differently to better uh, address either 
uh, as a matter of interpretation or at least laying groundwork for change regarding issues of social justice? Would you have any advice for the field? Sure, I, I can uh, say something about that. Um, I, not too many years ago, a few, about a, a few years ago, I wrote a, a, hand, a chapter for the Handbook of Social Psychology on the topic of social justice with Aaron Kay, who is a former PhD student of mine, now a professor at Duke University. Uh, and we reviewed, I don't know, something like 50 years of research on topics related to social justice uh, in social psychology. And I think there is a lot there that is extremely valuable. Uh, so certainly on an intellectual level, I think our research definitely does engage with social justice concerns. Um, but I think as um, was evident in Jim's remarks before, I think there is a lot of ambivalence uh, in our field about whether it's okay for social psychologists to address uh, value laden issues. Um, and I, I think it's unavoidable and in fact desirable. So I, I guess I, I disagree a little bit with Jim on this uh, issue. I, I do want not only social scientists, but I want all scientists really to be trying to make the world a better place. Uh, I, I kind of feel like, I don't know what the alternative to that is, but it seems like it would be irresponsible uh, if that weren't part of what we're trying to do when we're doing science, and including when we're doing social science. So I don't discourage anybody from thinking about implications or thinking about how to make the world a better place. Now, if Jim is just saying with the wearing of two hats that there's not enough hours in the day to be good at all these things, then I certainly agree with that. Um, but I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with us putting our work out there and saying how we think it would make the world a better place and other people can disagree with us and say, no, that would make the world, the world a worse place. And we'll say, uh, I think you're wrong. And <laughs> it goes on like that. Um, but I, and I also see nothing wrong with us communicating with people who, whose job it is, is to uh, design interventions, community activists and other people who are trying to make the world a better place. And in my experience, they find our work, uh, the work of the community of social psychologists to be extremely valuable and important and interesting. And it raises uh, a lot of things that they haven't thought of, as well as touching upon a lot of things that they have thought a great deal about. Uh, so I think it's a fruitful collaboration, and I don't see any reason why we should be um, ambivalent or shy about that collaboration process. Well, um, you know, we do disagree slightly about that. Um, I think it's important that we utilize the energy that young people have to go into the field to make the world a better place, the optimism and desire for positive change. I think that energy needs to be harnessed. Um, but I don't think that, I think we should be careful about allowing our desires, preferences, social preferences to inform our theoretical developments uh, somewhat. There's an example. Um, we have a tendency, the social psychologists have a tendency to think of uh, oppression of women and oppression of my ethnic minorities using the same theoretical framework. Yep. And um, I think that that's a theoretical mistake. 
and it's in part driven by the desire for a certain outcome, that is to say, for the um, equal treatment of women and the equal treatment of minorities and thinking of them as being similar objects that sexism is simply a kind of racism against women. And I think that that desire to um, have a certain policy output uh, or promote a certain kind of social change will interfere with our ability to understand the nuanced and very important differences between the dynamics of gender oppression and the dynamics of ethnic and racial oppression. They're related, but they're distinctly different systems of social organization. Yeah. And it's difficult for us sometimes to detect that if we use a framework of getting rid of prejudice in general. I guess I see that issue a bit differently, too. Um, I certainly agree that there are differences between oppression based on race or ethnicity and oppression based on sex or gender, but I also think there's some similarities. And I, I, I guess I feel like the extent that people want to, want to in quote, see them as similar is, is simply because uh, certain kinds of theories have proven useful in one domain and they may prove useful in another. I don't think that that, to, to my, in my way of understanding things, I don't think that is a direct consequence of people wanting to eradicate sexism and racism. And I certainly don't see that as a problem. I'm, I'm glad right. that people want to uh, eradicate racism and sexism. And I think we can agree or disagree about what the similarities and differences are um, and it, it certainly is likely to be the case that a, you know, a, a really precise theory about the dynamics of racial oppression, let's say in the United States, not only may not apply extremely well to uh, gender oppression in the United States, it may not even apply to racial oppression in South Africa or in Europe uh, extremely well. But I think that's the stuff that we need to get into as social scientists. And I don't think that the problem there is that people are, are motivated to want to um, do away with racism or sexism. So it, if I'm, if I'm, if I follow Jim correctly, it, it does sound as if it's not simply a matter of limited time to carry out the responsibilities that come from these different roles or limited time to wear two different hats. Jim, if I understand you, the idea would be even with unlimited time, trying to, pursue a particular value-laden agenda as an activist can actually have deleterious effects on your ability to theorize uh, effectively. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Um, it's, in fact, detrimental to um, good, clean, and potent theoretical development within the science. So, yeah, I, I, I would just, I would just jump in and I, say that. that like, yeah, sorry. Can, can I just say? I, <laughs> sure. I, I, I just want to add that the, the other side of that, though, is it can be detrimental to theorizing and empirical research in social science if people are either um, in denial about racism and sexism or uh, wanting to adopt a purely kind of Swiss-style neutrality there. I think their theories are going to be pretty lousy, too. Well, I agree with you. Um, 
especially this notion of neutrality. I'm not advocating for neutrality. I'm advocating for independence of thought and inoculation against the current popular theories of social justice, which might in fact interfere with the ability to see and understand social processes. Yeah, whereas I, I, I think that taking a kind of critical perspective on society actually is an ex exemplifies independence of thought and is in contrast to pretty much every other sphere of society where critical approaches to society are not really welcome. Yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to jump in to say that even though on the one hand, I actually am quite sympathetic to Jim's suggestion that uh, having an activist agenda can uh, have deleterious effects on your ability to theorize effectively, to uh, draw important distinctions, such as the, the distinctions between how racism works and sexism. But um, I'm not convinced, and here I'm with, with John, I'm not convinced, Jim, that the particular example you cited was the best one because like, like John, I don't, I don't see that particular example of uh, erroneously equating racism and sexism as, as, as a, as a necessary consequence of an activist uh, agenda, but maybe we can agree to disagree there. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree with that. I wasn't trying to say that, um, having an activist agenda necessarily um, interferes with or having the, the desire to have equality between men and women in the different ethnic groups doesn't necessarily conflict with the development of um, good theory. I'm simply saying there's a risk for that happening. Yeah. And we have to be on guard uh, pretty constantly in trying to prevent too much spillover, basically. And in, in my experience, people are on guard and sometimes overly on guard against, <laughs> <laughs> against it. And, we, and I would add that we also need to be on guard against the, uh, I think, naive idea that we can somehow be above human values when we do, when we do social uh, science. Now, there's no question about that. There's no way to inoculate yourself completely or be objective about it. Uh, I, we have to depend upon intersubjectivity, and certainly our reviewers and our editors and our critics will uh, will uh, try to argue with us when they think that we're getting something wrong. But I think that's what it, the the issue should be about what we're getting wrong, not about you know what our intentions are, or where we're coming from, or what kind of world we'd like to see because I think those are very independent things. And we sometimes, especially in social psychology, because we study biases, we're so inculcated with this idea that, you know, even as social scientists at every minute of every day, we must be seeing things in such a biased way. Well, maybe, but obviously that's what our methods are for and that's what our, our peer review system is for and, and so on. And, you know, whether somebody you know, wants the world to be this way or that way, their ideas should stand and fall uh, independent of that. So I think we should focus on the, the evidence and the arguments, not on what we guess people's intentions to be.
the most recent uh, conversation that I, or one of the most recent conversations that I, uh, by the time we air this, will have released as a podcast episode, was a conversation that included the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who, through the Heterodox Academy, has argued for the value of viewpoint diversity, including uh, ideological diversity in an academic discipline such as social psychology, where most of us in the field are center left or very left. Uh, so what's your reaction to his suggestion that uh, there's value in breaking up ideological orthodoxy and in particular not having proportional representation for conservatives, which probably wouldn't be feasible, but having a critical mass of conservatives in the field uh, to uh, break up orthodoxy so that the peer, the peers who are reviewing our work don't all agree with us, agree with our ideological assumptions. Yeah, I support that 100%. That's in part what I've been trying to imply in my statements about um, the sort of balance, ideological balance. I think it's really critically important that we try to do as much as we can to create heterodoxy in our approaches to social problems. Because there is a great deal of uniformity among social psychologists ideologically, which I don't think is, I think it's somewhat dangerous for the field in uh, preventing us from really um, utilizing the energy, intellectual creativity that's potentially available to us. Yeah, I disagree completely. <laughs> I, I've, I've written a lot of uh, uh, that's critical of, of Jonathan Haidt's forays into political psychology and uh, other areas. He and I disagree about a great many things, uh, including this one. I don't think you can be uh, an American social scientist with a PhD in the 21st century without having been exposed to an abundance, maybe even an overabundance, of conservative ideas. Uh, the idea that we're just completely in the dark about what conservatives think is, is absurd. Um, there are things that social scientists agree on, uh, and we should probably take those things seriously, even if they run counter to uh, the median voter in the United States in, in uh, 2019, which they surely do. Uh, so yeah, social scientists are liberal compared to the average American citizen. Um, but what does that mean? I think that means that um, that uh, the average American citizen is not very well educated about matters of social science. Hmm. I'm going to have to have you and John on sometime. Yeah, it's been tried. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted. Well, I wonder if, if it's not conservatism that uh, at least you, John Jost, thinks we need a stronger dose of in the field. John, are there any viewpoints or approaches that, uh, at least for those of us in social psychology doing work that's relevant to social justice, would there be benefit in there being more of? Well, I, I, yeah, I think we should, I think we should, uh, I, I would love to see, uh, an expansion of investment in social science research in general. We've seen a, a retraction of that again. Uh, you know, maybe if you take the long view of it, there's, 
you know, there's an increase in investment and then withdrawal at the level of the National Science Foundation or the National Institute of Health, these things. And, and a big part of the reasons for that is political. And there's no question that a lot of people are trying to put pressure on social scientists to, to do work that, that uh, the conservatives, the Republicans will, uh, will like more and will be more likely to fund. But that, to me, is putting the cart before the horse. Uh, I, I think that we need to recognize that without uh, investing in social science, we are uh, going to continue drifting authoritarianism as we have been uh, I think uh, social science uh, is one of those forces along with art and education and, and a number of other things that uh, is uh, let's say hierarchy attenuating to use Jim's expression <laughs> I think we should we should support that and invest more in that and we should be doing better research don't get me wrong I, I think getting things right is by far the most important thing um, but I think the way that we differ, we as social scientists differ from the average citizen is that they get those things wrong much more than we do. Um, and uh, they get them wrong in a conservative or system justifying direction. Uh, and I think the correction that needs to be made is not turning liberal social scientists to be more system justifying. It's the opposite to try to uh, deal with the system justifying aspects of society uh, and move us towards, um, uh, 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 yes, a better world, a, a world that is more, um, uh, that, that does allow more freedom to more people, freedom for the people who really need it, not freedom for the, for the business entrepreneurs. They already have that freedom. So I'm a libertarian, but I'm a libertarian on the left. Well, and to be clear, in, in the question, I was not suggesting that uh, political ideologies would necessarily be or political, politically slanted approaches would be what we would need more of. I was wondering about other things, whether it might be more qualitative research or other yeah. kinds of research. Yeah, well, I mean, there's no question that we are going through a period in social psychology in particular where uh, small sample size experiments with college students is just not going to cut it. And, and so I am fine with that as long as we have the resources to go out and do national representative surveys, which is something I've been really trying to do much more of. Uh, if I, I, I've also been involved in research on use of social media, harvesting uh, Twitter data and face, scraping Facebook and so on to do you know, big data approaches to uh, social questions about social influence, questions about political attitudes, uh, communication, uh, you know, what kinds of messages go viral, uh, and so on. So I'm a big fan of, of large sample sizes, national representative samples, or uh, large-scale big data studies of social media, for instance, and field studies, and, you know, all kinds of things that add ecological validity, uh, as well as internal validity, uh, I, I'm still a fan of the experiment. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, all these things I would love to see much more investment of, but those are really expensive. Those are, those things are more expensive than doing, um, you know, small sample size experiments at one's, you know, university institution with the, uh, freshmen and sophomores in the subject pool. So mm -hmm. I think, uh, it, we, we should be demanding those things of each other, but we should also be demanding that society invest more. Uh, so that we can do better research. 
So, Jim, same question to you. When you look at the field, particularly those parts that are addressing issues relevant to social justice, are there things that we, such as approaches, that we would benefit from having more of in the field? Well, I in part agree pretty strongly with what John just said. I think we need more economic investment in research. We need more methodological heterodoxy in the research, uh, the field experiments, data scraping, all of that is critically important and very potentially useful. Also, uh, cross-cultural research, trying to locate our theories, not only in the psychology of American, largely white European American students, but in, uh, in other cultures, um, and in other societies, it's really critically important that we try to understand and get a grip on the degree to which our theories can generalize cross-culturally. Um, I yes. think that's, that's important. I, t- I totally agree with Jim on that. Absolutely. But th- those studies are expensive too, but we should be. Mm, yes, they are. But it's, uh, I don't think we should give up on yeah. trying to do them. I totally agree. And I also just want, on a personal note, I'm glad that Jim and I found a point of agreement here. (laughs) On a personal note, I just want to say how grateful I am to Jim for being a a senior colleague for 20-some years. You know, he's one of the few people, I would say, in the field who took my ideas seriously uh, when I was just a graduate student and and really helped me and and talked to me many times uh, in ways that were extremely helpful early in my career. And I, I feel very grateful to have been a an acquaintance, if not a friend, of, of Jim Sidanius for the last 20 or 25 years. Yeah, well, I consider us friends, John. Good, excellent. I'm glad you did. <laughs> and friends can disagree sometimes, too. Right. <laughs> That's what makes it interesting. Yes. Well, just shifting uh, gears a bit uh, from what we think there should be more of, I want to shift in a way to... Uh, the thoughts of a commentator who I want to shift to the thoughts of a commentator who in a way has suggested that we might have too much of, of something And this, this commentator is a, a law professor who I've also interviewed on the podcast named Jonathan Kahn, who's written a book called race on the brain where it's about implicit bias. And he finds implicit bias research, very interesting, um, useful. Uh, but he suggests that, an inordinate focus on implicit bias places too much attention on the intrapsychic uh, individual level of analysis, and it distracts from important structural factors that, say, promote group-based hierarchy. I wonder, uh, and I'll go to you, Jim, first. I wonder if you have a, a reaction to that argument. Yeah, I strongly am in agreement with that point of view. Um, there has been a long tendency, a very old tendency for people, psychologists in particular, to psychologize the problem of racism and oppression. There are many other components to it um, which have to be considered, such as institutional practices, ideological norms and values, and the manner in which these ideological and institutional um, forces interact with interpersonal or intrapsychic 
processes. Um, we really have to expand the scope of what we're looking at um, and primarily concentrate and take very seriously the behavior of social institutions and system-wide social ideologies. So I would just strongly agree with uh, Khan's uh, critique here. Well, and, and I'm going to go to John to, uh, to offer his thoughts in a moment, but just to play devil's advocate, what would your reaction be to the idea that within the university as a whole or academia as a whole, there's a division of labor? And so we're psychologists. So we psychologize and we let our sociologist colleagues worry about those institutional and our political science colleagues worry about those institutional and structural factors. Well, I, I don't think we can make much progress if we silo the kind of work that we do. Uh, I think it's really important that as social psychologists, we're aware of the research and the technologies and methodologies of sociologists, political scientists, behavioral um, economists, and biologists. I think it's really critically important that we try to form connections between these various ideas intellectual silos and break down the walls between these various disciplines. Yeah, I, I agree. I'd rather see them integrated rather than kept separate. Uh, but that's kind of why I disagree with the premise of, of Professor Khan's argument. I don't think it's either or. Is it an individual problem or is it an institutional or structural problem? It's obviously both. Uh, and we, what we need to understand is the way the ways that uh, first of all that that individuals uh, create and and shape institutions and the ways that institutions and social structures uh, affect individual thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Uh, so to me, that is part of our job description as a social psychologist. But I see no reason why these things are mutually exclusive or why talking about one means you're going to be ignorant of the other. On the contrary, I would bet you that um, raising consciousness about implicit racial bias also raises consciousness about institutional racial bias and vice versa. Um, so I think it's, it's, the whole issue has been misframed there. Um, I'm a fan of implicit uh, attitudes in part because I believe that they can tell us the effects that social structures and institutions are having on our minds. Um, I, I've written an article very recently in Current Directions in Psychological Science in which I, uh, it's called something like uh, the IAT is dead, long live the IAT, in which, you know, I sort of argue that, that most of the criticisms, of, criticisms against research on implicit bias are attacking kind of straw man, straw person, versions of, of the work. Um, and, and I have to say this idea that, that one of the things that, the, that implicit research on implicit bias does is to bio, biologize racism, which seems to be part of what Professor Kahn is arguing. I think that's, that's a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of what social psychologists think when they do research on implicit uh, bias. I mean, uh, Mazarin Banaji, one of the founders of the IAT, you know, wrote at some point that um, she fully expects that people who grow up in India are going to have an implicit attitude that's more favorable towards really, really spicy 
peppers than someone who grows up in uh, the Midwestern United States. Um, but the reasons for that are, are hardly biological. She's not essentializing the preference for spicy food. She's saying you grow up in a culture in which from an early age you're exposed to something uh, and everybody else around you likes something. Of course it's going to affect your consciousness. How could it not? As you each look ahead, so not looking behind, but looking ahead at the trajectory over the rest of your career, what's one big question? Perhaps it's one that you've already been wrestling with and you want to keep wrestling with, or maybe it's a new one, but what's one big question you're excited to tackle? Jim, why don't you go first? Yeah, one of the things I really would try try to get a handle on are some of the reasons for differences in the degree of group-based social inequality across historical periods and across cultures. I mean, trying to get an answer to, as to why, for example, sc- countries in Scandinavia, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, are relatively egalitarian, while societies such as Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and apartheid South Africa are very hierarchical. How do we explain the differences between these societies? How close is it possible to get to a truly egalitarian society? Uh, What are the hindrances uh, towards achieving a kind of um, egalitarian uh, social system? And uh, that's really, the, for me, the remaining and very un- important and as yet unanswered question as to the why factor of the differences between the hierarchy and social systems. John, what about you? Well, first, I just want to say I, I love that as the future direction for research on social dominance theory. I hope that Jim and and his many collaborators do make progress on that question. I suspect there might be some values somewhere in that <laughs> research. And I'm fine with those values because I think those values are defensible and important and good. Um, and, and so I guess before I can think about what's my swan song going to be, <laughs> I, I guess I need to think, uh, I guess I need to say, I feel like we are in a bit of a crisis that is going to take some work to get out of first before I can think, you know, very broadly and creatively about the future directions of system justification theory in a way. I I think we're in a very scary situation, uh, not only in terms of the political situation in the United States, but in lots and lots of other countries, in Hungary, in Poland, in Turkey, uh, in Israel, uh, in uh, many Latin American countries, both Brazil and Venezuela on on opposite ends of things. I think we are possibly seeing a real return to authoritarianism, deep, uh, deep right-wing authoritarianism in most cases, some left-wing authoritarianism in Venezuela too. Um, and I think there's a possibility that we could be facing a resurgence uh, of fascism. Uh, you know, there's signs throughout Europe that, that uh, things that were happening in the 1930s are happening again. And so I do think social scientists with their 
little liberal values played a big role in in helping us to um, to overcome the last crisis of fascism and to build a new, more liberal, open, democratic, tolerant society in the United States and in other Western countries. And I think that we are going to have to play a role again. Um, and I don't see the heterodox academy taking that on, but I do think that um, social psychologists and social scientists more generally uh, have to take that on. And my hope uh, is that uh, whatever me and whatever I do with my students and my collaborators on system justification theory in some way will um, help to create a better outcomes uh, for our country and for other countries uh, as well through hard-nosed social science uh, analysis, critical analysis uh, of, uh, of ordinary behavior and elite behavior too, for that matter. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank John Jost and Jim Sedanius for taking the time to talk with me. For more information about each of them, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where I will include relevant links. As always, to offer feedback, go to Twitter and you can mention at tatter underscore rags. You can also go to iTunes and post a review. Either way, I will appreciate your feedback. If you want to offer tangible support for Tatter, and I want to thank those of you who already do, go to patreon.com slash tatter, and you can decide at what level you want to make a monthly pledge. Be aware, if you're a student at the college where I teach, I cannot accept your support, but all others, come on in, the water's just fine. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well.